You think we'll be talking about Bitcoin in 10 years from now? Uh, I, I won't be talking about Bitcoin in 10 years, I can <laughs> assure you that. But you might be in at least six years. Uh, as Treasury Secretary, as you just exactly. said. Exactly. I would bet even in five or six years, I'm no longer talking about Bitcoin as Treasury Secretary. I'll have other priorities. You'll be loaded up on Bitcoin and a, and a gazillionaire. I can assure you, I will, I, I will personally not be loaded up on Bitcoin. <laughs> okay. Never say never. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is Pierre Rochard, joined with Michael Goldstein. Michael, how are you? Doing good. Another brutally hot day here in Texas. <laughs> and uh, today we're joined with a pseudonymous Bitcoiner, uh, BTCDCA, uh, that we met on Twitter, and we wanted to have him on and talk about DCA. Yes, uh, um, I'm happy to be here. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And you guys are uh, real heroes of mine within Bitcoin. And it's uh, it's just an honor to be here. So without... your webs, uh... go ahead, Michael. <laughs> oh, I was just gonna say your website has quickly become one of uh, my favorite websites uh, in Bitcoin. Oh well, actually, I you may be you may be referring to the DCA BTC, which which actually that one is not mine. Uh, I I did, however, obtain the the, the website and the and the GoDaddy uh, rights to BTC DCA. Uh, but there is a fellow who. <laughs> Am I getting things confused now? You, are. you, you, you might be, but but I, I will say that that oh. that's a good uh, segue into the conversation because uh, he essentially did exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I I happen to be a little bit too busy with the day to day things in my life to 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 build more of the website I had hoped to, but he beat me to it. Is the bottom line. So uh, well, shout out to him. Uh, yes, shout out to him. yes. John Cantrell is his name. John yeah, exactly. Cantrell, ninety-seven. He's 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 a boss. So everybody uh, follow well, uh, him. My my apologies. Yeah. Well, no, no. I, I <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly don't take any offense, and uh, I, I think he actually. I wanted to bring that that website up for this discussion because it it essentially shows the number of satoshis you accumulate over time with a, a fixed dollar amount on a regular basis, and then also shows your return on investment, which. It, it's quite startling. If you if you start off from, say, my perspective, I was involved in equities right out of my first job in 2010, in investing in you know the dollar cost averaging for Vanguard index funds, and th that was my essentially process and, and plan uh, going forward. And I've done very well. Uh, I'm debt free, and you know I'm able to to now look at some other investments and started in Bitcoin in early 2017. But then when I back tested the DCA, which at the time, you know, John's website wasn't up yet, but there was another one. There was a build, build a nest egg for your future, a build the best Bitcoin nest egg for your future. And I fortunately found that within all of the other nonsense that's, that's on Bitcoin Twitter and other areas of Twitter. I found that one. I found your, your podcast, by the way, um, the Nakamoto Institute. And that really took me down the right places. And, uh, when I found the, the idea of, of dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin and back tested it, I realized, my God, I, I, at this point, I could probably own the hospitals that I actually work at. So, <laughs> so had I done that, I, I would be in a much better place at this point. But 
in any event, I'm still good. And uh, the other thing I should mention is this, this is not financial advice. This is just simply my experience. This is my strategy. And I think many, other, many others have been very happy with this particular strategy. Now, on a past uh, podcast, I said that when someone says this is not financial advice, they're about to give financial advice. Yes. Um, yes. But do you want to do you want to give like your however the lawyers? The lawyers love it when I say that. Yeah. Uh, so, your, your background at a high level without doxing yourself, kind of what, yes. what your life background is. Yeah. So so I, I've lived in flyover country my entire life. Um, I went to medical school. Um, also. Uh, residency. I'm a vascular surgeon now. Um, in any event, I, I've, I've, i finished the 28th grade. Let's just put it that way. So, and then I've been, been in practice for about 10 years now. So, uh, I've, I've lived through the financial crisis, the cycle. I, I was actually on the East coast for two years and part of my training and lived in Philadelphia where I was, um, intimately involved with the effects of the financial crisis and that many of the people I worked with, um, had 401ks that were, they were calling them 201ks at, at that time. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of angst and people were very worried at that time because of everything in the media. But I will tell you that the lesson that I learned from that is some of my mentors stayed the course and they continued to invest on a regular basis with a fixed amount throughout the entire process. And in, fa- in fact, one, one of my mentors now is he's sailing around the world. So, um, he was able to comfortably retire um, at a rather young age and, uh, is extraordinarily happy. So I guess the bottom line from that is that's where I learned DCA. I learned, um, how to buy a fixed amount, do it on a regular basis and, uh, no pun intended, be essentially surgical with your investments. And Bitcoin in particular is especially suited for this because of the volatility and the, the timing of the cycles. They're, they're so much shorter than the traditional equity markets, in, in my opinion, compared to the Dow or the NASDAQ or some of the others. And, um, well, I'll let you guys... Can, can yeah. you elaborate on what you meant by surgical? Well, I mean, I mean, so for me, I'm not... It's, the price is not, does not matter. I'm, I'm making a buy every single week at a certain amount. So if, if it's low... Great. I'm, I'm happy about that, but it doesn't, it doesn't change my viewpoint. If the price is extraordinarily high, like it was in December 2017, look, I'm still buying. Now, I'm not you know, buying an entire Bitcoin when it's $17,000, $18,000, but I am buying a certain amount. And it, it takes the emotion out of it. I, I am completely separated from uh, the, the actual push of the button on the buy signal and uh, the buy function, I mean. And, and looking back at that, the, the reason that it's, it's surgical is it, is it takes out all of the, really the, the emotion involved. And uh, what happens to a lot of people is they're always looking for these patterns. If they can identify some type of, uh, say, counting method or you know, a number method to determine when you should buy and when you should sell or, or, or some other technical analysis. And, and that, to me, never made any sense uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, mostly because of, of statistics. If you've taken a basic statistics class, you walk into the room and, and the professor takes, you know, he asks people to do 30 coin flips, takes the entire class. And they, they, when he tells everybody to do this coin flip, they pick one student when he goes out for a cup of coffee and they, they tell, tell that student to do a simulation. So while, he, while this professor's out of the room, the students do this coin flip for 30 coin flips each. And there's one who's in another room that the, the class selects, he does a simulation. 
professor comes back in and says, all right, well, let's see the results. And he can immediately identify the one who did the simulated coin tosses. And the reason that's the case is because everybody's looking for a pattern. And the one who did the simulation never has four heads in a row or four tails. And that's because people are thinking that that is not random. And in, actually, in random numbers, you get four heads and four tails. And so when you mean when he's doing the simulation, that he's just kind of doing it in his head saying, oh, tails will come next. Correct. Okay. Correct. Because he's thinking that there's, you know, there's got to be a non-random pattern to this. Mm -hmm. And so the human mind is programmed for these things. And it all goes back to really an evolutionary thing with the hunter gatherer concept. And, you know, we were on planes in Africa during evolution and you'd hear something snap behind you and it could be a lion, a tiger, whatever it is. And so it's a fight or flight mechanism in your brain. And we're trained for this because in nowadays we're looking at it in finance. So we're looking for the threat and the systemic risk. And, and to me, you cannot let that, have anything to do with how you're investing. And that's, that's really goes to the core of what dollar cost averaging is. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been thinking about um, Bitcoin as like a, a savings technology and how should you use this technology? Because like any technology, you can use it and inflict harm on yourself um, or you can use it correctly and do well. And like, if you look, I think it, the stat is that if you um, if you bought at any point in the past and waited three and a half years, then you at least broke even. And so, kind of having the the idea of like, all right, this is not just a get rich quick scheme. This is like I'm committing to this for at least like let's say four years for the sake of argument. Um, and then, all right, how, how do I go about like maximizing this opportunity? Well, you're going to want to be steadily accumulating over X amount of years or really, but like it comes down to what, what is your cash flow situation like? Because if you are, if you're earning money, then you should be saving up and in either investing it into you know a, a an investment or saving it in terms of cash, which I would argue is is Bitcoin. Um, you should be doing that regardless of what your horizon is. And um, and then it's like, all right, if you're getting close to retirement, maybe you shouldn't own so many Bitcoin, uh, and you should start converting some into like fiat and some some bonds and more traditional investments. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of like what's been on my mind with with how to think about Bitcoin as a savings technology instead of a, a payments technology, which is like where everyone's mind goes when when they're trying to think about like, oh, is Bitcoin going to go mainstream? We've got to get it into like merchants, point of sale, blah blah blah. Yeah, I, I think that the the one book that probably frames it best for me is is the book called The Millionaire Next Door. Yep. And it was something that the financial certified financial planner that I had on the last day of medical school explained basic finance to me and talk about student loan repayment and, you know, encouraged uh, consolidating the loan and paying it off and not keeping up with the Joneses. The whole idea of the millionaire next door in that book is that you want to be a prolific accumulator of wealth rather than an under accumulator of wealth. And the difference is a prolific accumulator of wealth is somebody who take your salary 
time your times your age times 10%. And if you're above that number in your liquidity of whatever your liquid dollar amount is, you're a prolific accumulator of wealth and you're basically thrifty and have saved your money. However, if you're a UAW, uh, you are spending um, and buying things you probably don't need and you're keeping up with the Joneses. And the, the book struck me because most of the people that they studied and looked at who are UAWs were actually high income earners. Tons of physicians, tons of lawyers, tons of accountants, uh, software programmers. I'm sure today would be in that group, although it was, you know, this was written in 1996. Um, but it, I think the point is that everybody tries to keep up, keep up with their peer group. And, and those who do really pay the price. I know I have many colleagues who try to buy the newest automobile every two years, have the shiniest car in the parking lot or have the, the second vacation home. And it's easy to fall behind. And, you know, when those interest rates start, start adding up, it's, it's no joke. Um, another example of that, if you remember Ryan Leaf, when he was drafted the same year as Peyton Manning, and I think he got $100 million or something over five years. And this guy never panned out. He was a complete bust for his first team. And he had spent, I think he bought a house in the ocean in San Diego, a couple Ferraris. It's, it's the typical thing. And was broke and working at a car wash, I think, three or four years later. Somebody who, who had an enormous uh, payday and, and did the absolute wrong thing with it. Um, so for me, it was The Millionaire Next Door. That was a, a great book. That's a fantastic book. Yes. I, I think everybody, if, if, if your listeners have not read that, that's just a must read book. Although it's, it's nothing about Bitcoin, but I think it, it, it is. I mean, it, but it is, though. It, it is. Yeah. And like it, to me, it's, it's so frustrating when we get into these conversations about, hodling you know people would be like oh you know we we shouldn't be hodling we should be spending to like uh stimulate the bitcoin economy it's like okay i yeah and especially like spend and replace it's like okay why not just not spend right like yes. what, what and that's like anathema to them because well then you're not like using it who's using bitcoin you gotta be using it it's like all right what about just Sitting on it, and yeah. I mean, what, what about what about it, buying yeah. what about buying it and transferring yeah. it to a hardware wallet? Isn't that technically using it? I mean, that's securing the network with the miners, right? Yeah, I mean, to 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 get some in the first place, you have to have used it as a recipient. Yes, for yes. Sure. And, then, and then say if you're if you're buying a certain amount every week, you're you're essentially using Bitcoin. That that would be my argument for that. But do you need do you necessarily need to buy gasoline with it with your automobile? Do you need to? Uh, pay for a plane ticket to, to New York or Austin if you're going to a conference. I, I mean, look, I mean, th then it goes back to what is money. And then you have to go to human action. You, know, you have to go to Mises. You have to start reading your books, which, by the way, it's a free education that, that you guys, they, this was the, you guys were the first ones to, to introduce me to that. I mean, this is, this is my new economics uh, class and that, that I go to every once in a while. So it's, uh, I, I cannot believe it's free, by the way. I mean, human action, there's just so many, so many wonderful uh, uh, things within that. I mean, I'm, I'm highlighting the PDF as I go and, uh, and learning every day. You learn about, well, what is money? And, uh, you know, it's, it's not a medium of exchange right off the bat. These things, it's going to be a cycle. And, and right now we're, we're a collector and store of value. And, well, I mean, for Pete's sake, the, just this past week, the, the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell is talking about Bitcoin as a, a store of value. I mean, what, what a time to be alive. Yeah, the great part of that, and I, I think we may have uh, talked about it, uh, Pierre and I, but um, 
the fact that they view it, oh, it's just a store of value and it's not the payments. The best part about yeah. that is it means that the government doesn't think that it's money then because they too in, are, are stuck in this paradigm of money is for you know paying and transacting and whatever else. And so it actually kind of keeps the government off our backs uh, because they, they're they just kind of focused on the wrong uh, traits uh, that, that would highlight Bitcoin as a threat to them. Um, the other thing, though, like with the, the spending, you know, I agree with Pierre that it's, it's funny to be promoting spending, but the interesting thing with Bitcoin, too, is as you accumulate, um, I think everyone has tr truly felt it's not just a meme. Uh, they, they felt a lowering of their time preference. There's just like a real shift in what do you actually feel like you need to be surviving? And so uh, that that goes well with the millionaire next door because it's this fantastic feedback loop of, okay, well, if I want to become the millionaire next door, I need to you know consider how do I become a an accumulator? And as you start accumulating this good that has just so much potential just as an investment, um, you, you really start to consider your own, you know, preferences. And uh, because of that, you just become a better accumulator because you don't need to spend as much money on things. You just want to accumulate more. Yes. I mean, having that low time preference and, and really the minimalist lifestyle is something that's brought so much joy to our life and our family. You don't need all of these things. In fact, you know, you could say that the, the Great Depression of a lot of people's lives right now is that they buy all these things they don't need and, and that they don't that's really Tyler Durden stuff right there. Yeah. I mean, this is, <laughs> and, and, you know, and that's, that's, you could, yeah, you know, in the fight club and, and Mr. Robot, that that's really, you know, the modern day uh, wall occupy wall street movement. That that's where all this is coming from. And there's so many people that feel that way now, you know, you, you don't need the, the Mercedes Benz, you don't need the Porsche. I mean, many of us have to buy that first to, to think that we need it. And, you get it and then you start getting the insurance payments or you park it at the grocery store and you get a door ding and you know, then you got to take care of that. And it, it's not worth it. I, I can speak from experience. <laughs> it's not worth it. I we've, we've significantly downgraded our life and uh, we're much happier for it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's true it's, joy. It, it's funny how like um, Marie Kondo has become a success and a popular hit because of her message of like, Hey, dump anything that doesn't spark joy in you. And it gets people to actually like snap out of their consumerist like hypnosis that they're in and actually evaluate whether things are contributing to their well-being and to their happiness. Because like we, the, the, I, I think that like the moment of actually spending money gives you like a temporary like dopamine hit. And it's actually unrelated and disconnected from the utility, the use value of what you're actually buying. It's just the action of buying something, anything. Yes, uh, gives and, you and it wears off. It yeah. wears off. That dopamine hit, you look at that new car, and after about a year and a half, you see a few scuffs on it, a few, few marks from a rock, or, or maybe the door ding. And it, you start the engine and it just doesn't fire the dopamine like it once did when you drove it off the lot. It loses the new car smell. Just, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The, well, the Seinfeld, think... You have the Seinfeld car smell all of a sudden. <laughs> and you, you, you don't know where that came from. So, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I think anyone who's advocating uh, just, you know, spending of Bitcoins without really considering what you're actually buying with it, they need to um, also explain why they think that Bitcoin should not be sparking joy for you. Because otherwise you'd be holding it. <laughs> yeah, good point. I mean, you're able to focus on the things that matter. And in the farther you go down the rabbit hole of Bitcoin, you realize that we're just so early. I mean, I at one time thought that I was late at being in, you know, getting into this in early 2017. And yes, you guys were far before I was. And, and, and we I'm felt very, extremely I, late. Yeah, the there you go. And so I, I yes, I, on the one hand, I'm very jealous of both of you. But on the other hand, I know that I'm still extraordinarily early. Uh, and, and, you know, this last week has only given me confirmation of this. I mean, we've had, you know, our, our president tweeting about this Trump tweet, you know, the Trump tweet. We had Patrick McHenry, I mean, a ranking member of the Senate Banking Committee talking about Satoshi Nakamoto and that Bitcoin can't be stopped. I never dreamed that this would happen in early 2017. I, I really didn't. I, I'd love to hear your guys' perspective on that. Yeah, I think in, in 2013, I was telling my now wife that uh, this was going to like replace, you know, the U.S. dollar. And she was extremely skeptical and thought that I was kind of a loon, still does. Um, but I, I... I think that I was overly optimistic about how quickly it would happen. And um, at the same time, though, I wasn't wrong that it would happen eventually. So uh, it's just it, it's it's kind of weird because like if you're on a um, an exponential curve, it's very hard to understand where you are on that exponential curve. And so it things happen. um very quickly, but they also happen very slowly, depending on like what your your, your frame of reference is. Um, so, like five years ago, I would never, you know, sorry, I would have thought that Bitcoin would be trading on the CME futures in like six months. Um, my wife would have thought that it would be trading on the CME futures in like ten years uh, or or fifty years. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so like. It's very hard to try to figure out like where we are on the curve and the timing of it. Um, and the other thing is that like we we know that some of these Congress people own Bitcoin just based on what they were saying. And I think that it's going to be increasingly the case that there are politicians who are no coiners. Uh, like uh, that Brad, I forget what his last Brad name is. Oh, Brad, 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 Brad Sherman. Sherman, yeah. Um, although I've, I've heard people argue that he, and you, you'll hear about this like conspiracy theory about anyone who speaks out against Bitcoin. They secretly own Bitcoin and they're just like doing this yada yada. I have been saying that since 2014, the hoarder psyop. <laughs> yeah. I, I, Paul with all Krugman due respect, has been Michael, I, I, I never buy those theories. I think that I don't People really are... either. I just like the meme of projecting that onto them of like, oh, I, I see what you're yeah. doing. Wink, wink. Yeah. Well, they love the attention. Those guys love the attention. They love the hits and the likes and the retweets. I mean, Noriel is a perfect example of that. I mean, this guy, yes, I, he hates Bitcoin, but it's so funny to see his reaction. Now, I'm, I'm disappointed I haven't been blocked by Noriel yet. The thing is, though, that like I don't even buy that theory because – 
if you look at the ratio between the engagement he gets on tweets that are anti-Bitcoin and the amount of followers he has, he gets very little engagement on these tweets. <laughs> Compared to people who yeah, um, put out pro-Bitcoin tweets, like they get outsized engagement relative to their followers. So I think that I do think that they are ideologically opposed to Bitcoin and that they have like a no coiner dogma about them that makes them tweet this crap out, even though it goes against their interests um, mm -hmm. compared to like them just like buying some Bitcoin and then pandering to Bitcoiners on, on Twitter, uh, where you can, you can get a lot of uh, retweets and likes on that. Um, and we've seen that with like uh, sports celebrities like Russell O'Connor. Now, I, I on, and on their side, like I don't think he's just tweeting that out to pander, right? Like no, I think that no. he genuinely believes in in Bitcoin. So I think that both sides are 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 being very um, uh, honest. Uh, it's just that they you get entrenched into an intellectual position, and like. For, for Peter Schiff or Nouriel Roubini, it's going to be very hard for them to like get out of the entrenched position that they've put themselves into. And maybe, maybe it'll be impossible and they'll just have to um, essentially kind of be in a straitjacket in a mental asylum when Bitcoin has replaced <laughs> the U.S. dollar. With hyper-Bitcoinization, it'll be, it'll be really funny to see their reaction. That being said, so I mean, I, I've said that like uh, being pro-Bitcoin is just easy mode Twitter. You know, uh, regardless of whether or not you believe it, hopefully you actually are pro Bitcoin. Um, if you say pro Bitcoin things, everyone's gonna love you. That's the way to get engagements. But like, um, I don't know. Like, if if Peter Schiff uh, or Nuriel were to come out and give like an honest like I was wrong kind of thing, I think that the the community would actually kind of rally around them. Yeah, I think though that like it's, to, it's their ego against uh, themselves for for it to come off as genuine, like he would have to essentially um, put forth the arguments that we've been putting forth, which you would think would be easy, but it's not easy if you're faking it, right? Like it's very hard to pass an ideological Turing test if you're not uh, on on the side genuinely of of what you're trying to argue for um and uh so i think that it would be interesting that let's say like peter schiff has been deliberately building up a anti-bitcoin persona so that when he becomes pro-bitcoin it has outsized impact that would be interesting and that would be Machiavellian on a level unknown <laughs> since Machiavelli machiavelli's time uh, so I, I'm skeptical that that'll that'll come through, but uh, I, I like that 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 approach to uh, to life. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I doubt he's that Machiavellian, but you know, you never know. He could wise up. I I I, I think uh, that there's uh, atonement for everyone <laughs> if you want it in the Bitcoin religion. Yeah, absolutely. And like uh, all of us were no coiners uh, uh, before we, we got into Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, prior to 2009, literally everyone in the world was a no coiner. So we need to understand that that state of original sin and, you know. But every, everybody's a scammer, though, right, Michael? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a weird world out there. Yes, that that was that was a fantastic article. I mean, when the first time I read that, then all the light bulbs went off in my head with this all of the ICO nonsense and all this stuff that uh, some of my friends who who got me into this, they, you know, they invested in every ICO and every single thing. At the same time, I was simply buying Bitcoin, and right now they are completely wrecked. They they didn't. I mean, their portfolios were sitting at probably a dollar value of well over half a million dollars at one point. And it's probably right now on coin market cap at about 5,000 and probably with liquidity problems, probably down to $500. Cause I think one of you stated that the, you know, those, it's like selling a, a gift card. Some of these, these altcoins when you try to get finally unload them, I mean, no one's going to buy it. So uh, he, that particular buddy of mine is, is, pretty salty at this point now that he, he wasn't buying Bitcoin on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. At the very least, like the, the altcoiners that I think are, are reasonable are first of all, the ones that uh, have kind of the, the index investing approach, which I think is, is fundamentally flawed, but at, at least they end up having some exposure to Bitcoin. And then there's the, um, the ones who are trading altcoins to make more Bitcoin. Uh, so that is like, okay, if you're doing that correctly, as with any kind of active trading, like you cut your losses early. And so presumably you, you're you better off than, than the number three, which I think is the worst, which is the people who like literally do believe in the marketing <laughs> and, and read the white papers and are like, oh, I've done my due diligence. I've done the fundamental analysis. And I think that this quantum resistant smart contracting platform is going to be like the next big thing. Like those to me are like the, the purely innocent victims of scammers. Uh, that they, they weren't even like trying to intelligently uh, time the market or anything. Well, yeah. and they, they, they cer certainly didn't read Jordan Belfort's book, The Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, it, it, that, that book, I read that before the movie came out with DiCaprio and, and uh, that was, I think, who directed that? It was Scorsese. Dark, Dark, yeah. Dark, yeah. It was just an incredible movie. But I remember reading the book and thinking, you know, who would fall for these scams? <laughs> I mean, and the, the book came out in 2014. Turns and out then, and your friends. Flash, flash forward, <laughs> many, many people who uh, a lot of other people would consider be, uh, you know, these people are operating on people every day. Th these are uh, accomplished surgeons or doctors and and others, some lawyers I know, were, were buying ICOs. And uh, it, it's, it's amazing what people can talk you into with finance. Uh, the allure and greed and, and appealing to that, that part of your brain, it it's all goes to that, that primitive evolutionary uh, behavior that, that we're ingrained with in our DNA. The one, the, the one thing uh, I look back on that article, though, is that... Um... Like I, I'm actually impressed that Ethereum is where it is relative to where I thought it would be in 2014 when I wrote that article. Still, yeah, it, it, it's it, yeah, and it's amazing it has any market cap whatsoever. Although I, I think Coin Market Cap's been widely regarded as being uh, completely false and and fake um, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Now the the other thing is that the Part of the blame lies with Bitcoin itself, which is that if you look at Bitcoin's price history and kind of the, the returns, that it, it makes you think that, oh, well, 
if I get on, on the next Bitcoin, on the Bitcoin 2.0, next big thing, then I'm going to have the same returns. And so this is like a, a surefire way of doubling or 10xing or 100xing my money. Yeah. And um, you can say, well, that's that has been true. And not just for Bitcoin. Like if you got in on the Ethereum ICO presale, uh, you're still up uh, a massive amount. So I think that like part of it is just the the FOMO causing you to like, all right, now I'm going to project this onto the future and think that I'm going to get in on the next big thing. A friend of ours has referred to this uh, for years, this phenomenon is, is you know, just uh, he, he says that altcoins are a regret market. It's people trying to chase the returns that they felt they missed out um, the first time when, you know, the topic of this yeah. conversation, DCA, uh, kind of gets rid of that, is, is able to kind of push through that mindset uh, if you're able to embrace it. I, I think the other part is that the moment that um, there is a regret market, uh, then everyone who's going to be entering that market on the supply side, that is the sellers and promoters of altcoins, um, are going to be catering to that and stoking it essentially. So like you do see in their marketing, like they're always trying to compare themselves to Bitcoin and to why they're going to replace Bitcoin or flip in Bitcoin or outperform Bitcoin. Um, whereas if, and, and borrowing the language from Bitcoin, right? Like you can even go back to like Litecoin. Like why did he call it Litecoin instead of calling it light currency or, you know, uh, light money or like any other kind of, or, or even the, even the term light like is referring to it's it's it was sort of a secondary sort of or, or a lighter version of bitcoin in in various uh senses after that there was you know if you remember there was Feathercoin, uh which the innovation on Feathercoin was it took litecoin and made the blocks even faster i i think i i remember uh telling my wife a joke about aircoin would be the uh, successor to Feathercoin, uh, where there is no blockchain. <laughs> you well, just I'm, have I'm, just, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for Coinbase to come out with the new coin called the Satoshi. Yeah, yeah. We, we could say that it, it has a limited value, a limited number ever that will be produced. And guess what? You you can buy about nine thousand today for one dollar. Buy nine thousand of these things. You know, it, they could easily market this if they would just. Uh, yeah, but I think that the route that Coinbase would go would be that they would say, hey, look, there's this new altcoin. It's called the Satoshi. <laughs> uh, and they just try to confuse the market like they did with Bitcoin Cash. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they have the, the name Toshi. They've used it for like five different projects now. They can always pivot it to a new one. Yeah, absolutely. Now, they got rid of the uh, Coinbase basket which was their attempt at creating kind of an index fund approach to investing in crypto assets. Um, I thought it was interesting that they got rid of it because normally, like, I, I think in, in software, it's fairly common that you'll add a feature and even if it has zero users, you don't really remove it because that takes effort. So you just like leave it. And I think that they had to remove it for legal reasons. I think that they actually got into legal trouble because of it. 
and had to remove it, not just because there were no users. Oh, I also wondered if they uh, were just worried that too many people were getting too many Bitcoins with the index. That's that's plausible as well. Uh, I, I, I think that... I think that um, Brian would be okay with that in the sense that the alternative is people default to buying Bitcoin, but maybe they A-B tested it, right? They were like, you know what? If, if the basket is available, then people do buy the basket, but if it's not available, then they actually overweight Ethereum. And so it actually makes more sense for us to uh, just not offer it. And then we'll, we'll end up selling more Ethereum at the end. Uh, which then uh, that blows up my theory of, of them getting into legal trouble, which I like better, by the way. <laughs> it's very confusing, though, for um, for people who are like new. You either refer them to the Cash App, and you know it's like, all right, it's ignore the boosts and whatever, but maybe you should look into those as well. Go into this like feature that's in this sub menu, and there you can buy Bitcoin. And there's like no, there's no recurring buy or anything. Uh, or go on to Coinbase where they do have a recurring buy or go on to Gemini where they do have a recurring buy. But they also have a wide assortment of shit coins uh, and avoid those landmines. And so it's like trying to walk someone through how to, how to buy Bitcoin has become increasingly complex instead of simpler. Yes, and, and a simple D- DCA method. I think there, there's a guy in Australia who came up with a, a cash app that specifically focuses on DCA. And I'm forgetting his name right now, but, he, but he's all over Twitter. Yeah. And he was, he was on another podcast recently as well. But someone should do that. And I think you could be a competitor with cash app if, if you had first an, an, a number of Bitcoin in which you were going to sell, which would probably be difficult. But um, you know, if cash app wanted to go down that route, I, I think it would, be, it would generate a lot of interest and probably... Uh, you know, people would start talking about DCA and saving and buying a fixed number or a surgical approach, as I like to say it, every week. Yeah, was the the automation I think is is crucial because people are so uh, emotional about their decisions, and so you'll end up like seeing, oh, the Bitcoin price just went up, you know, three hundred percent. Oh, I'm gonna that like reminds you to go buy some which is the worst time to be buying some arguably, right? Or not. Um, and, and then when it's in the bear market, you're like, you lose interest in it and you forget about it and you stop accumulating. Whereas with the automated DCA approach, like it's like a gym membership that you forget to cancel. <laughs> and so, except that you're actually getting an asset in return instead of just like, uh, you know, receipts in your, yeah, on you your get, credit card. You get swole without remembering to show up. Yeah, it's your, yeah. It's your LA it's your LA fitness dues every 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 month. Yeah. yeah. At the same time, there is something nice about with Cash App having to actually go to it. Um, from a you know religious perspective, you know Jews wrap to fill in and say the Shema. Catholics will uh, pray the Rosary. Uh, Muslims will pray five times a day. A Bitcoiner goes into Cash App and does his uh, <laughs> daily buy. There you go. And, and you know, why hasn't somebody come up with a Bitcoin church? I, I mean, I know it's probably tasteless to even mention that, but you know, the, you know, most churches don't—they're all tax-free entities and and uh, uh, pay zero tax. I've, I've always wondered how Scientology got away with it. But... Aren't they like yeah, a giant real estate scheme? We need to get. Yeah. Uh, we need to start buying up land. 
Yeah, we'd, we'd probably yeah, have to I mean, ask. Michael... Patrick McHenry may be amenable to this idea, but I, I doubt Steven Mnuchin and, and Trump would, would even even entertain that. Yeah, I, I would be down with getting like a federal grant of land, but selling Bitcoin to buy land just doesn't seem like a good trade. No, no, not not right now at all. The problem there is uh, then you'd have, you know, church and state um, concerns. Um, true, true. Although I think that if maybe now, maybe if they give an equal amount to every religion, including Bitcoin, uh, then it, it's a workaround that, but that's, that's a fair concern. Yeah. But then you're going to get all kinds of shitcoin religions. <laughs> oh yeah, you're right. All right. You know what although, we have to do? And I'm not just talking although, about like Jedi or something much, much <laughs> worse. We're going to get people saying that they're, uh, you know, like, uh, Aurora coin <laughs> believers, well, you, you know, we will have won and we'll all be validated when it, at church, they're passing around the basket with it, with a QR code that yeah. that's, that's when it's over. Now, I, 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 uh, I had a tweet responding to Brian Armstrong uh, last time I recorded a podcast uh, about them uh, not adding shit coins. And I got a lot of responses. Um, a lot of them were from people who were shilling nano. So if you are the kind of person that tries to predict which altcoin will pump next, I would guess it would be Nano uh, will pump because their community seems very active. Um, and then there was also, um, oh, now now the name escapes me. Uh, it was not XRP. Uh, I'll, I'll post it on my uh, altcoin Twitter account uh, later. But uh, I thought that was interesting. I, I, I also, I was thinking to myself, like, I need to like remind myself to check the price chart later uh, in like six months on Nano and see if I turned out to be right about uh, do I attract altcoiners who are going to have enough momentum to to pump their coin or do I tr attract altcoiners who are just salty about how much money they cost? <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah. You know, I, I've been I've taken quite a bit of heat on Twitter with people who just say, "Hey, you should you should do lump sum buys. Why why are you doing dollar cost averaging? You know, you're missing the boat here, and you just do you don't understand Bitcoin because you're not lump sum buying." And and I'd like to hear your guys' perspective on this. On, on well, why if if you on, have on a lump sum, then yeah, sure. Uh, most people don't have lump sums; they have like a uh, salary. Yeah, they have a life. They have a mortgage, and, and they have kids, and and a yeah. Wife and, now, and, and on the other hand, if they have like a portfolio of assets, right? And so they've already got, you know, let's say they've got a million dollars worth of stocks, and they're they're becoming a bitcoiner. And so then it's like, all right, uh, their question is, do I sell all my stocks and buy Bitcoin, or do I sell none of my stocks and just buy Bitcoin going forward? You know, doing DCA. Or do I sell a percentage, you know, in between of my stocks and, and go with that? Now, like, I, I just, I, I don't have a strong view on that. My bias would be towards don't sell any stock and just start accumulating going forward because of, not because it's the optimal financial strategy in the abstract mathematical sense, but because... I think that psychologically it will allow you to dip your toes into Bitcoin 
and start acclimating a little bit and learning more about Bitcoin as you grow your, your stacks of sats. Um, and you'll also avoid the um, cognitive like bias you would have of, hey, I lump some bot, now I should lump some self, right? Like I think that they kind of like go hand in hand with each other um, of someone like kind of trading in and out. And I, I think that it just, even though hypothetically in theory, it would make sense of like dump all your stocks and just load up on Bitcoin because that's going to be the highest risk adjusted expected return going forward. Um, in practice, that's just setting yourself up for failure because then you're going to freak out when it goes down 50% and you're going to like, you know, sell all your Bitcoin and go back into stocks with 50% less capital. And, and this, this all goes back to the evolutionary behavior of our minds and, and how we think about a threat model. And, and we feel like we have to continually do something. You, you buy a lot here, you sell a lot there. And, and what, you're, what you're doing in the end is you're, 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 buying, you're buying high and you're selling low. That's, that's what the vast majority of traders are doing, and they don't even realize it. So and if, and if you ask any accountant, they'll tell you, look, if you sell a variety of stocks you've held for a long time or even Bitcoin, you're going to have to pay tax on all of that. And if anybody thinks they're going to get around that, they're, they're absolutely insane. And they've learned nothing from Edward Snowden and, and the ways that, that, the, that the IRS and NSA and everybody else is tracking uh, most of our financial data. Unless we wait long enough. Well, yeah, good point. You, 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 yeah. And, <laughs> until you wait until the IRS is gone. That, that I've, I've, seen, I've, I've seen a few people post something like that on Twitter. I mean, I, I would be interested to see how... Um, like if, if Bitcoin seriously takes over how, how the IRS would have to adapt both in the short term and in the long run. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's not a ridiculous question. They, you know, if, if just like just this past week, you know, we have the chairman of the federal reserve, we have you know Senate finance finance committee. We have, uh, the president tweeting about this. These are potential political issues for 2020. Yeah, and especially if we have politicians uh, who are doing this, how are they going to feel about having to pay the capital gains tax? Yeah, it'd be great to get uh, Patrick McHenry, McHenry on here on, on the Noted podcast. That, I think that would probably be one of the most most listened to episodes. Maybe Patrick, if you're already listening, yeah, you're welcome on anytime. Yeah, <laughs> because they, there's like there's a proposal for a bill that would like make it so that it's kind of like a foreign currency. So as long as it's a, an, under a certain dollar amount, you can spend it without having to pay capital gains taxes. But I hope that they just make that loophole bigger and bigger so then you can spend more and more. And th at that point, then you can be using Bitcoin like day to day um, and not paying capital gains taxes. Uh, and that would be the ideal situation for Bitcoiners. Now there's, there's countries where there's just like no capital gains taxes on Bitcoin at all. And uh, so I think like Singapore is like that. So uh, people who have a big stash of Bitcoin are going to be gravitating mm -hmm. towards countries that have a good tax system like that. And that'll mean that uh, they'll become Bitcoin citadels. Kind of like Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo is also a very good tax haven for people. And uh, I've heard Puerto Rico as well. Um, it's just that I think that the, 
the standard of living is just not as nice as Monte Carlo or Singapore. No, and even in Monte Carlo, if, if you if you had the stack to do that, you know, you I think a five hundred square foot apartment goes for about a half a million, maybe even a million right now. That's so. yeah. That's uh, that's kind of a, another example of people using real estate as a store value. Yes, <laughs> I mean, how many how many trillions does the real estate market make up in the United States? And it, it sounds like a lot of the Chinese are selling a, a lot of their real estate here. Yeah, I've was, seen that. I'm sure in, in, in places in, I mean, I'm in flyover country here. We, we don't, real estate values have remained the same for the, probably the last 10 years, but I, I would imagine places like Austin and New York, I mean, they're just skyrocketing. Every time I've yeah. been there for conferences or whatnot, it's, I'm always, I'm always surprised. I'll pick up a real estate guide and, and look around and it, it, it goes up just about every time I, I go there. Yeah, it's pretty wild uh, seeing how the prices have, I, I, I still have in my mind in Austin sort of, uh, apartment prices from when I moved here, you know, over a decade ago. Uh, and so like every time I actually see what the prices are now, it's just, it's wild. Yeah. But I, I can understand the prices in Austin because it's actually a nice place to live, but in New York, like that's completely <laughs> unjustified. Right. And same thing with like San Francisco, uh, which did, did help me acclimate to, uh, rising Austin prices uh, because anything seems like small change compared to San Francisco. Um, And you, you, you do not get your money's worth when you live in San Francisco. Yeah. I think that like uh, when, when we were looking at prices in Austin coming from New York, my wife, uh, I had to, she, she thought like she was getting a bargain every time she looked at a price. And I was like, no, you got to get out of that mindset because you're like comparing these prices to New York prices. And so you're going to like, I guess it's good that she thinks that she's getting a bargain and she's going to be happy. But at the same time, it's not a great negotiating position to be in of like, Oh wow, this is already discounted. Like I don't need to argue, you know, with uh, the realtor for uh, less, less money or whatever. But uh, we'll go on, going back to that lump sum thing. You know, I, I think you guys asked on one of the last podcasts, it was like, well, where, where do you get that lump sum from? And, and I, I thought a little bit about that. And so, you know, you have a variety of people now. I mean, you have a lot of computer science grads. I know at the, at the university where, where I work, you know, th- there's rumors that the, you know, some of the computer science people with, you know, degrees in cryptography or PhDs in cryptography are, you know, getting seven figure salaries from Amazon and Facebook and Google and others. I, I don't know if that, that just may be urban legend around town. Uh, but, you know, some of them probably are getting enormous signing bonuses. You know, you so you have that. You have, you know, people have large inheritances. Some people get bonuses. Maybe they're lawyers and they got a big verdict or settlement. You have contractors. You got salespeople get a big bonus. And, and I guess the question is, you know, do you put your whole stack of your bonus into Bitcoin right away? Or do you, do you stagger it out? And, and I, I don't know the answer to that. I think that goes down to, this comes down to who you are and what your risk tolerance is and what you would do. I know what uh, I would yeah. do, but I, but I can't speak for anybody else. But the I other think thing that is, I'm, though, like, yeah. how long have you been in Bitcoin, right? So, like, if you've been, like, DCA accumulating for the past three years and you know that you're not going to freak out if the price drops 80%, then, okay, like, just consider it, like part of your DCA of just like putting in this, this big lump sum and really like DCA could be annual, right? Like we think Mm -hmm. about it like monthly or biweekly, 
but there's no reason why your DCA accumulation couldn't be like this annual dump into Bitcoin. It technically is, it comes out to the same, although I think that it's, you know, you should time it with your cash flows. But um, uh, the, to, to me, like the, the lump sum argument is really about how, 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 how much scar tissue do you have? Like, are you a Bitcoin veteran or are you a, a newbie who's like going into boot camp? Um, because if you're just going into boot camp, like you don't know if you're going to wash out or not. Like you're, you're not, you really haven't really proven yourself as a hodler. Right. I mean, there's even been times in Bitcoin's history where I've made like a, a, a purchase at what seemed like egregious prices just as sort of an experiment to myself, just like a stoic exercise. Um, but that itself, you know, takes a lot of preparation to be getting to that mindset. Yes, a lot of study and a lot of going through the, you know, the Nakamoto Institute, uh, reading, you know, you know, following along with Jimmy Song and, and others and, you know, Saifedean's book. And, and it, unless you've digested that book, it's, it's hard to put it all into perspective. And then to just once you finally come up with a definition of what Bitcoin is. And what I also find interesting is that every Bitcoiner I've ever talked to has a different definition for what Bitcoin is. But no one disagrees that it's volatile and that it is the cryptocurrency. It is the blockchain. There, there's all the other buzzwords, all these altcoins are not of any value to, in my mind after study studying this for a little over two years. But, you know, I, I think, you know, you guys can you know expand on that a little bit more, but, and that's why, that's why essentially I only go in, you know, a certain amount each week um, is I learn more and more about this. You know, you may increase that amount over time. And I think others do that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other part of it too, is like how, um, like what, what age are you? So that's part of the equation. Like if you're, if you're 20 years old and you're just coming out of college uh, and you're getting a signing bonus from your first job, sure. Why not? Like, why not just throw it into Bitcoin? Um, and, and then the, the other part is how, like under how much financial stress are you day to day? Because if you're living paycheck to paycheck, then really you can't afford any Bitcoin to begin with. Uh, and you need to build up a cushion of fiat um, so that if you do lose your job, then you don't have to sell your Bitcoin at a bad time. And so that's where it's like, all right, you got to be, um, you got to be, you got to have like a balance sheet that, that allows you to have that flexibility. Because uh, if you've got to liquidate your Bitcoin during the bear market, that's not a good situation to be in. Um, if, you, if you have a fiat cushion that you've been building up and then you bought Bitcoin, well, now in the bear market, if you get fired or you're on disability or whatever, uh, then you're able to, to, to hold and see your Bitcoin in, in increasing value later on. Sure, you know. Oh, go ahead, Michael. Oh, I was just gonna say, I mean, one of the saddest things that I've, you know, sort of one of the saddest conversations I've had were like with people who did not have much savings at all. Um, and we're kind of in, uh, you know, th these are younger people who are just, you know, trying to get their, trying to figure things out. Um, and they're sitting, they, they open up their like Binance account for me to show me what they've been investing in. And I just have to, you know, smile and nod and kind of say what I can about Bitcoin. But it's also like, you should not even be thinking about this. 
I would imagine there's even a, there's some people that you guys know that over the years had a ton of Bitcoin. And when these prices went up, even in you know, 2013, 2014, sold the vast majority of their Bitcoin, thinking that this was the all time high, only to, you know, years later, feel enormous regret. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or think that uh, I'm going to sell now because I think it's going to crash and I'll buy back later. I've seen that much more. And the price never went back to that level ever again. So it wasn't even that they were like bad at timing. It's just straight up. They never even saw that price again. I, that, I that saw a me. lot of that in 2016, 2017 with the uh, San Francisco folks. Mm, man. Well, th- I, I thank them for their sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, like, they're, they're part of the problem. Honestly, like I'll just say this straight up. Like they're part of the problem because it's a Bitcoin tax would, on being in Silicon Valley. Bitcoin would uh, succeed much more quickly uh, if everyone just refused to sell, right? Like uh, the price would go uh, stratospheric. Um, so I, I think that like uh, these people are part of the problem in the sense that they're not they're not true believers. Like they're not like. And I remember when the price was probably at, like twelve hundred dollars in like December two thousand thirteen. And my wife was like, well, when do you sell? And I was like, we don't sell. You don't, what do you, <laughs> what, what do you don't mean? Sell. Like, what do you mean? How dare you ask you, how dare you ask the question? Have you not been listening to me? Uh, so, like, remember the hash functions. It's a, it's a one way function. And, yeah. And the you idea, buy. and, and the, the, the overriding principle is that this could be a unit of account, a global universal uh, unit that the, the world, the world reserve currency. And if, if that's the case, you know, there's no reason to ever sell. If, if you sell, you're being taxed. You're having to pay the tax, which is helping the competition. And uh, you're enhancing them. But, you know, th- then you think about, well, Naval just had a podcast, one of these small ones that he does for, you know, five or six minutes. And he talked about something called the Kelly Criterion. And I had not heard of this, but it, it's essentially talking about don't put all of your eggs in one basket. And it's, it, he alludes to the kitty in, in poker where you're never going to put everything on the line at once because if you lose on that hand you, you know you're living under a bridge mm-hmm. and, and, and he basically says you know you don't do that so if, if you and i looked it up online and there's a lot of math involved and i noticed that a lot of the same equations are the same as what an original author of a book called value averaging had and that was some of the same principles be- behind dollar cost averaging for traditional a- assets and, and i think it's just it, it goes to the heart of being a bitcoiner and, and just learning as you go and, and never letting go of what you have, because if it's true that this does become a world reserve currency, these people who sell now or even in five years, six years are going to say it was the biggest regret of their life. And just even the like uh, the financial gains aside, uh, to me, it's like it's ideological. So uh, if 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 someone is selling Bitcoin, they are giving away ground to the Federal Reserve and to the U.S. dollar, and to fractional reserve banking. Like, uh, so it is about, to me, like, all right, do we want a better future for ourselves and our children? Yes. Then the conclusion is clear. Like, you need to not sell your Bitcoin. Um, but it, I guess it's it's harder to explain that to people who um, are, are kind of still very much in the, like, dollar mindset of, like, Oh well, I could buy myself a you know a new car if I sell my Bitcoin right now. Do we need to issue a noted fatwa that uh, selling bitcoins is makes you a sinner and a statist? 
Yeah, that could go along with the Bitcoin church. That that could be one of the first uh, lessons of of the church. You, you give the lecture there. I had uh, get fiery I had some, sermons, believe yeah. me. <laughs> I had like a traders giving me grief. Um, I think it was a couple of years ago, probably uh, like close to the top of the bull market. When I told, when I tweeted out that people who like short sell Bitcoin are immoral. Uh, and that it was I remember like, that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. People were like upset about me saying this. <laughs> and, oh, and that the market would punish them. I think that's what triggered me. Um, but did, did you uh, get, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I still, I, I, I said it like tongue in cheek. Um, but it was only half tongue in cheek. Like I do uh, half uh, believe that that it's it, 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 you're you're enabling a system of evil uh, by by doing that. This is, I was just, uh, you know, I had some stuff about fractional reserve banking today, and it was making me go back and and look at some of my, you know, choice quotes from uh, Jesus Huerta de Soto's uh, book, Money, Bank, Credit, and Economic Cycles. And he had, there, there was a quote about, uh, from, uh, I'm going to get his name completely wrong. It's De La Calle or something like that. He was one of the Spanish scholastics in the 1500s uh, doing kind of early work on this idea of, uh, you know, different monetary economics and, uh, you know, the problems with uh, money and banking and stuff. And he, this guy outright would say that uh, to, if, if you knowingly give money to a bank um, that is engaging in fractional reserve uh, banking, um, especially if you are doing it because you want to get that, you know, an, a, a nice little interest rate, uh, you, you're a sinner. It might just be a venial sin, according to him, but like he viewed it as a sin um, to to be engaging with it because uh, you are no, knowingly, uh, you know, helping them uh, engage in expropriation of funds. Yeah, it's, it's much. It's much like the tweets that were going out this past week too about what happened in 1971. And, you know, fractional reserve banking was taken off at that time. And then you look at the number of people who are in for-profit prison systems. It, it's, it's gone through the roof. I mean, you, you could make the argument that, that fiat currency is racist. And I know, I know, I think, Pierre, you put that tweet out, and I'm sure you had a lot of people triggered by that. But You know what? Surprisingly not. Yeah. Uh, I, I, when I tweeted it out, I was like, this might be my most controversial tweet. I might get a lot of grief for this. <laughs> Give me the um, end of the, the Twitter run. Yeah. And I was like, I, I, was, I, I thought to myself, probably going to have to delete this one. <laughs> but you know what? I'm I had no didn't. pushback. I'm glad you didn't. Z I had zero pushback. No one was like, how dare you compare racism yeah. to the U.S. dollar? I had zero pushback because it's self-evident. Like you look at the $1 <laughs> bill. And it has like George Washington on it, who was like this, uh, you know, white slave master on it. Um, so it's not like the SJWs can get up in arms about it. They could get up in arms about like me promoting Bitcoin and they could say, oh, well, Bitcoin's no better, right? Like they could yeah, argue that yeah. you know, Bitcoin is just as racist. But even that's like, that's quite a stretch. Like, all right, well, <laughs> how so, right? Like, you, um, you, could, you could argue that Bitcoin is the least racist currency because it just doesn't care. It hasn't, it's code. It, it's not one person. It has no controller. Nobody's determining. Have I not told about you about? I, I haven't told you about woke coin. Uh, it was a hundred percent. Yeah. Well, you know what? We'll we'll stop the recording now, and I'll tell you about woke coin <laughs> uh, because 
This is only for our premium subscribers. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I got a hot tip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I had an idea uh, recently of just if, if it would be great if there was a website that just has all kinds of graphs of um, negative uh, social trends, you know, so like more people in prison, uh, rates of uh, chronic illnesses, Divorced. stuff like that, yeah. all of that stuff and just like have it and just always mark where um, for, for any health related mark where 1977 is um, when the first government uh, dietary guidelines came out. And then uh, for everything else, just, just mark where 1971 is. But um, Michael, do you think that those dietary guidelines would come out if it wasn't for 1971? Uh, actually, no. Like, I still think that's 1971. I think it does play a part because of... Yeah. I mean, Earl Butts was uh, the... the uh, uh, USD... No, uh, I forget uh, which which uh, secretary, but he, he was over. He was overlooking uh, like let's make farm subsidies. So he's like the reason that corn is such a is so heavily subsidized, and that was under the Nixon administration. It was all, it's all connected. I'm, oh yeah, I'm I mean, like if you the, look, uh, yeah, it's always sunny rates, guy. You know, you look at the rates of diabetes in this country since 1971. It's it's exponential. It, it, it's a parabolic rise. I know let's get, let's get Trav on the case. I mean, we, yeah, right. I mean, we, we I, I literally, I look at my practice and I work with a lot of patients with peripheral arterial disease mm -hmm. and the experts in our field, they're telling us now a third of the population is going to be diabetic in, in, in the next 10 years, it, there's going to be no shortage of people that we're trying to save their limbs. Uh, the, the diabetes and in particular with smoking combined with diabetes is like pouring concrete into your arteries. These people are probably a 50 to 60% chance of losing a limb and a major amputation over their lifetime or, or 20 years, um, you know, in smoking and diabetes. And it, it's all related. I mean, the, the, the big tobacco settlements in the 90s, all of the executives and the scientists who got busted for all that stuff, they went over to the processed food industry. It's, there's, a, there's a great guy on Twitter. He's got a fabulous book. His name's Robert Lustig. And you guys got to mm, follow him. Yeah, he, he, yeah. The, the, the Sugar, the Bitter Truth. And the whole story between behind high fructose corn syrup. And he now, he actually went back and got his JD because he wants to start suing some of the major uh, food, processed food industry and, and the people involved because they all know, they all know what they're doing. They've known for this for a very long time. And uh, he's isolated some of the uh, byproducts in the liver that uh, a lot of these processed foods create and why it it damages the liver and causes insulin resistance. And this is the metabolic syndrome and the abdominal obesity and the hypertension and, and, and all of these problems that we're seeing. And, and in my life, I mean, I, I, we, we have two or three patients a week that, that we're actively trying to save their limb. Yeah. Fortunately, we're survive, we're, we, we're successful in many cases, but it's, it's sad that, that when they come to me, it, it's, it's a lifetime of processed foods and tobacco and all these things that have been, really marketed as being safe. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's just, it, it is, it, it is sinful and, and it's frustrating that it's been promoted by government and, and corporations in, in, in the way that it has. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've had sort of this private belief for a while that, uh, you know, people are always looking for like, what, what's the next, you know, 
economic crisis thing, it's like the student loan bu loan bubble and stuff like that. I have wondered uh, to what extent, you know, in the future, uh, just the costs of uh, dealing with all of these chronic illnesses. We've basically had a bubble in in chronic il illnesses, and at some point, someone is going to somehow be able to pay for all of the resources uh, to help all of these patients, and that's going to be a that's going to be a major. Uh, you know, have a major crippling effect on the economy, having to to redirect resources like that. But I just think like having like all of these graphs and be able to pinpoint, it's almost like a way to try to um, quantify some of the stuff that uh, Saifedean talks about in his book. Because these are things that like, if you if you tell people this, it's, I've talked to people who even like, it's not even that they disagree. It's just like almost like it's like, it's like too much. Like you can't really all be connected to this stuff. You, you know what the crazy thing is going to be, Michael? People are going to look at, you know, in, in 50 years, they're going to look, what changed in 2009? What, <laughs> yeah. what, what happened in 2009? <laughs> Things started to improve. Healthcare improved. Right. Well, if you just had a giant, you know, page with all these graphs and just seeing like, you know, uh, 1913, um, 1971, 1977, you know, just like various dates that we would sort of connect to sort of major pivotal moments in these like underlying societal systems. And you could see, you know, okay, look, like all of these, clearly there was a difference. Some of these, maybe not, but it would help kind of, you know, perhaps illustrate, um, you know, was there really that strong of, of an effect? And I happen to think that we'd probably uh, get some crazy, um, uh, conclusions out well, of well, they of may this. they may even look back and say, well, what happened in 2018 and 2019 with the the drop in type two diabetes? I mean, wow, was it Twitter? Was it the, the <laughs> was it the nutrition guidelines that that Twitter was coming up with? And, and my God, <laughs> we've we've eliminated syndrome X. No, I I think that you bring up great questions, but I, I got to share this with you. This is too good of a story for you guys because of your computer programming background, um, you know, with, with healthcare right now, everybody knows that it's, it's, it's all about EMR or electronic health records and medical records on the computer. And if you've been to the doctor in the last five years, you'll know that many times you go in and he's got his back to you or she's got his, her back to you and, and she's typing and, and, and you're trying to talk to your doctor and they're focused on the computer. Well, th that's one problem with EMR, but the other is that these EMRs are not compatible with other hospitals. So if you get sick and you're in Austin and you're from New York, they're not going to know any of your allergies. They're not going to know any of your medications. They're not going to know any of the, the operations you've had in the past because it's, it's two different EMRs. And in many, ca many cases, there are six different EMRs, even in some towns, even in places like New York, I've heard there's eight or nine different ERs within they the promised city us of Manhattan. What happened? Yeah. Yeah. What happened? Well, here's what happened. Uh, and I know this first well. So I, I, I actually went uh, with our Vasco Society to Washington uh, to discuss this with the House Ways and Means Committee. And at that time, uh, Eric Swalwell, our hero, he, he was there and talked with him. And Eric said, hey, look, what can we do to help Vasco surgeons around the country with healthcare?" And he said, now, first off, don't don't ask me for a raise. We're not going to raise Medicare rates because then insurance companies would. And you know, we just can't do that. That's not what's. And I said, that's, I'm not asking for a raise. All I'm asking is that we have one EMR for the entire country. And in fact, I, I explained how when EMR started, it was started by the VA system. The computer scientists for the VA came up with the first EMR and their goal was to give this to everyone free of charge. 
And this was already paid for by the taxpayer. And they actually had a pretty good system. The problem is, is that Wall Street got involved, Silicon Valley got involved, and they all wanted a massive payday. And today, the largest DMR, they're out of Madison, Wisconsin. It's known as Epic, Epic Systems. The woman who started this, she's a billionaire. Um, it's got the largest market share of any EMR. It's all closed source. There's no API. Uh, physicians who, like myself who, who, are, who are pretty good at this now, you know, I have templates for everything. I don't spend a whole lot of time on the computer and I, I spend most of my time with the patient doing an exam and talking to them because the actual time on the computer is so minimal because I've been able to streamline it. But most physicians have not done that. So it's, a, it's, it's been a real stress for a lot of docs. Um, the rates of burnout, as they call it, among doctors is very high. The rates of suicide among surgeons and other doctors has also gone up with EMR. And it's really a shame because I, in my mind, this all could be prevented with one system that you had API access, open source access to. And, and frankly, we already had it. It was called the VA system. But these, you know, our, our overlords in the panopticon of Wall Street and Silicon Valley uh, wanted a larger payday. It seems like uh, shit coining is just like a, a <laughs> bit of human nature. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Greed. Greed gets the best of so many different areas. Your, your EMR VA maximalism is uh, yes. toxic. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, may, you may have some, some docs write in and say, that guy is insane. I work at a VA and you know, the VA system is horrible. Uh, I, I will say that, that when I did, I actually went to a lecture in medical school with one of the VA guys who came up with the original system. So I heard the lecture and he was at that time, I mean, that was 2000. That was in the year 2000. And he was talking about how Wall Street and Silicon Valley was going to take this over. And I, and I understood it at that time at a certain level. And now I look back and I think, man, I wonder how pissed off this guy is. <laughs> he, he realizes that they, they completely exit scammed all of us, that the taxpayer paid for all of this for healthcare, So it would be free in every single clinic and every hospital in the country. But now we have multiple different versions. Some hospitals spend up to $100 million to implement Epic for their system, which is, in my mind, just astronomical amount for something that frankly could have been built in a basement somewhere by, by a kid so we'll yeah see, we'll it, see it is it a goes. pretty like basic uh crud application that it's not like like a video game is more complicated uh to to program right with the 3d graphics and the physics and all of that um compared to a, a record keeping system <laughs> yeah well if well if we had you guys actually working on emr you could come up with a, a new emr Maybe base it on the uh, Bitcoin transaction rate. So the first hospital or clinic that starts taking Bitcoin as payment, I, I predict would, would do very well. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll save that for a post-hyper-Bitcoinization. We've got our yeah. hands full yeah. right now. Um, yes. <laughs> I, this was a lot of fun talking about it. We're, we're already over an hour, so we've got to wrap it up. Um, thanks for coming on. I, I hope we got the uh, DCA message across to people. Um, go follow at BTCDCA on Twitter. Yeah, thank, thanks a lot, guys. I, I got to go come out to one of the Nakamoto dinners there and have a steak with you guys. I'd love it. Yeah, please do. All right, guys. Have a great night. You too. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. Uh, Michael, did you want to talk about the uh, dinner in Dallas? Uh, yes. So uh, we did find bigger space. Um, as I, I tweeted out on on, on Twitter, um, We've we've hard forked the dinner to a uh, gigaseat dinner size limit, so um, 
basically, I, I think there's enough space that anyone who wants to come will be able to, uh, to come. So um, go to nakamotoinstitute.org slash events to um, apply for a spot. And uh, I'll be rolling out emails um, as I get them and do some you know, basic KYC, uh, know your coiner. Um, so yeah, uh, please, please sign up. And I hope to see everyone in Dallas. Um, the dinner is shaping up to be way better than I was even expecting. Uh, and I had high expectations after last year. So awesome. All right. Um, and yeah, go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash noted or go to noted.org uh, to support the show. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. It's, it's unbelievable the degree to which our sanity depends on a functioning sociological structure. And, and here's why. Well, first of all, you kind of need to know what to do every day. You have to have a routine because you're an animal, you know. And, you know, if you have a dog or a cat, dogs are a really good example of this. Dogs like routine. They like to be walked the number of times a day that they're supposed to be walked. And they get quite sick very rapidly if you don't, if you don't routinize their, their days. Children are exactly the same way. Now, you can overdo it, right? But still, you know, you need to know approximately when you should get up. It should be approximately the same every day. You need to know approximately you're going, when you're going to eat. You need to know what you're going to eat. You need to know who you're going to eat with. You need to know where to buy your food. It's like 80% of your life, 70% of your life, something like that, consists of those things that you do every single day, that you repeat. And those are often the things that people think about as the trivial elements of their life. But one of the things I would like to point out to you, if you do the mathematics, I, I did this with a client of mine who was having a hard time putting his child to bed. They were having a fight every night. And I knew by that time, the studies indicate that most parents only spend 20 minutes per day of one-on-one -on -one time with their child. Now, the reason for that is that people are busy, and it's actually not that easy to parse out 20 minutes of one-on-one -on -one time. It's a lot bloody more time than you think. But that's all there is, 20 minutes. And he's spending like 40 minutes a day fighting with this kid, trying to get the kid to go to bed. And that's not very entertaining. You know, you think, well, it's just having a scrap with the kid about going to bed. But it's, no, 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 no. If it happens every day, it's a catastrophe. So you do the math. So we'll say five hours a week for the sake of argument, just to keep it simple. It's 20 hours a month. It's 240 hours a year. That's six 40-hour work weeks. So that guy was basically spending a month and a half of work weeks doing absolutely nothing but having a wretched time fighting with his son, trying to get him to go to bed. Horrible, right? That's just way too much time to spend doing something like that if you want to actually have a positive relationship with someone because it's just too... It's just too punishing. And so, well, so you need structure, you need predictability, and you need more of it than you think, just to keep you sane. Now, if you're lucky, and, and maybe a bit odd, you can deviate 5% from the norm, or 10% from the norm, or something like that, carefully and cautiously, as long as the rest of you is all well-ordered in a normative manner. You might be able to get away with that, and you might be able to sustain it across time, and people might be able to tolerate you if you do it, or maybe you'll get really lucky and you happen to be creative but reasonably well put together and people will actually be happy that there's something idiosyncratic and unique about you. But even under those circumstances, mostly what you want is to have a routine that's disciplined, that's predictable, and bloody well stick to it. You're going to be way healthier and happier and saner if you do that. And then the other thing that you need, because 
this is one of the things the psychoanalysts got wrong, I think, is that they overestimated the degree to which sanity was a consequence of internal, of being properly structured internally, you know? Because from the psychoanalytic point of view, you're sort of an ego, and that ego is inside you. And of course, it rests on an unconscious structure. But the purpose of psychoanalysis is to sort out that unconscious structure and the ego on top of it, and to make you a fully functioning and autonomous individual. But there's a problem with that, because the reason that you're sane as a fully functional and autonomous human being isn't because you've organized your psyche, even though that's important. The reason that you're sane if, you're a if you have a well-organized unconscious and ego is because other people can tolerate having you around for reasonably extensive periods of time and will cuff you across the back of the head every time you do something so stupid that people will dislike you permanently if you continue. And so what people are doing to each other all the time, just nonstop, is broadcasting sanity signals back and forth, right? It's like you smile at people if they're well, if they're not, not only behaving properly, but behaving in a way that you would like to see them continue to behave, you frown at them if they're not, you ignore them if they're not, you shun them, you, you roll your eyes at them, you manifest a disgust face, you don't listen to them, you interrupt them, you won't cooperate with them, you won't compete with them. It's like you're blasting signals at other people about how to regulate their behavior so frequently, well, it just makes up all of your social interaction. That's why we face each other, and we have emotional displays on our face, and we're looking at each other's eyes, and we know exactly, we know as much as we can about what's going on with each other, given that we don't have immediate access to the contents of their consciousness. And so partly what you're doing with your routine is establishing yourself as a credible, reliable, trustworthy, potentially interesting human being who isn't going to do anything too erratic at any moment. And everyone else is around there tapping you into shape, making sure that that's exactly what you are. And that's how you stay sane. And so what happens to people too if they don't have a routine and they get isolated is they start to drift. And they drift badly because the world is too complicated for you to keep it organized all by yourself. You just cannot do it. So a lot of our, so we outsource the problem of sanity. And it's very intelligent that we outsource the problem of sanity because Sanity is an impossibly complex problem. And so the way that we manage the incredibly complex problem is we have a very large number of brains working simultaneously on the problem all the time.